0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Hello, I'm Clint Jasper. Thanks for joining me for a trip around a big country. This week we're learning about an incredibly rare and precious Tasmanian timber loved by furniture makers and woodworkers. Supply of the King Billy Pine is limited and closely guarded. We'll visit Central Australia and meet growers of the native bush food Kwandong. They're calling for research into the nutritious little fruit to better understand its growing cycles. And getting back on the horse, we'll meet a competitive para horse rider who's adjusting to life after a second leg amputation.
2: At first you like oh my God, how am I gonna do this? Because it's like standing on the edge of a jetty and you're just about to launch onto a boat and you've got that gap of water in between and you're like, am I gonna fall in that gap? But you just sort of hold your breath and take a leap of faith.
1: Taking a leap of faith to keep riding, we'll meet Susan, a national dressage champion, who says she doesn't feel disabled when she's on her horse. That is coming up first today. Of the thirty-five thousand native plants in Australia, only one has been commercialised for food, and that's macadamias, by the way. Now, a farm in northeast Victoria wants to add more to the list. Reporter Annie Brown went out to look at plots of warrigal greens, kangaroo grass, and Myrnong. Another good one
3: there. Oops, that one broke off. That's, right. That's fine, That's fine. I'll time. give them a wash and, cool. uh, and then we'll cook right, we'll,
4: we'll up a bit. Gay Baker is an Indigenous farmer in the hills of the Kiwa Valley in northeast Victoria. This morning, she's digging up some murnong, an Australian native yam.
3: It's been grown here in Australia by Indigenous people for a very, very long time. It used to cover vast areas of Victoria and New South Wales and further on it was a staple food crop. Was nearly lost over the time with um, sheep and cattle and loss of habitat. It is a vegetable so it does need tending. To me it tastes like a sweet parsnip. Some people say they can taste coconut. I can't and you roast it so you like you caramelize your onion you caramelize your meron and it's very very tasty so this is taken how long has this crop here taken to grow okay so these are seedlings that were brought last year in winter time last year they would probably nearly be two years old by now, basically, and these little ones over here are ones that have struck from these seeds, so they're a lot more naturalised. And they struck autumn, late late summer, autumn in this area. They're they're behaving differently than what's recommended, and behaving differently than even in Wodonga, where I grew them firstly, and out at. Um, NEC Greengate Farm, where I did trials out there in 2018 in the middle of the, the drought. So they do have an ability to adapt to different areas. I guess you've been growing Mernong for a while then now. What started all this and why did you want to bring it back? Um, when I was doing my Diploma of Organic Farming at Greengate, our head lecturer, uh, Rob Fenton, gave me the opportunity to run the Mernong project there. And I was always interested in bush foods. I wanted to do herbal teas. But the opportunity was given and I took it up. And we've just gone ahead in leaps and bounds since then. It's interesting being, I guess, at a trial site for crops that are thousands of years old. You know, they're not new crops, are they? No, they're not new crops, but the plants themselves. The cropping methods have been lost. The knowledge has been lost. Well, lost to me anyway, and my family and so forth. So it's now relearning, re re establishing, re identifying. Uh, I have no idea where the Lancelata will cross with Walteriae or Scapulata. I have no idea. We'll just have to, it's a trial. And we'll grow it and see what's going to work, what's going to be the most resilient. Why do we need to bring back Indigenous cropping? The soils are not European soils. They're Australian soils. And they're trying... People are growing, and they're not trying, but they are growing European crops. But our environment is changing. Our weather is changing. Everything is changing. These plants... Our Australian native plants have lived in Australia for thousands upon thousands of years. They've lived through drought. They've lived through ice ages. They've lived through many changes. They are adapted to Australia. It is only a commercial aptitude that we all buy wheat bread, not kangaroo grass bread. It's now time to relearn these things and their values and their values as food crops are quite often a lot higher than european commercial crops and reintroduce them and and bring it from bring bring it from a, a a garden novelty to a bespoke industry to then a commercial industry That's the process, in my mind, that we need to go through to reintroduce plants, native vegetables, that are totally adapt to Australian conditions.
5: And as you can see, quandong trees everywhere. Like uh, here, you look at a quandong tree. Here, you look at a bit smaller one. It's a baby quandong tree. Yeah. Here, look at a little bit bigger one.
0: Gunnar Nielsen is inspecting Kwondong trees on his rural property near Alice Springs in central Australia.
5: And behind you, you look at a, another one.
0: Usually at this time of year, these native Australian bush trees would be heavy with small red fruit, a popular bush tucker food. In a normal year, Gunnar picks buckets full of the fruit and has enough to cook into jams and chutneys. And even give some away.
5: Normally, you know, when we take the seeds out, you'd have uh, maybe 400 kilo.
0: This year, how many kilos would you say you've had? Nothing. Zero kilos? Yeah, zero. You don't know why that is?
5: Uh, no, I don't.
0: Hi, I'm Victoria Ellis. Gunnar is not the only quandong grower in central Australia who's had a disappointing harvest this year. It's a similar story at Earth Sanctuary, a neighbouring astronomy tourism operation that picks kwandongs for use in beer, jams and dampers. It also educates visitors on the bush food that has been a nutritious staple in the diets of local Indigenous people for thousands of years. Director Dan Falzon has been experimenting with growing kwandongs for the last few years and says this harvest has been lower than normal.
6: It hasn't been an awesome season for us, for the quandong. For the I'd have to say, look, you know, compared to some seasons, and I wouldn't know the seasons off by heart, but, you know, this year's probably been around about 30%, I would say. Do
2: you have
0: any theories about what's going on?
6: Oh, look, it's a million dollar question. Um, And the nature of that also keeps us a bit wary about how much you invest into these sort of products, because that's a challenge
7: just walking up here to this kwandong
0: tree now and checking it out. A Runda and Nungawamuri woman, Raylene Brown, has been collecting, eating and cooking kwandongs for decades as part of her bush food catering
7: business, Kungas Can Cook. I absolutely love kwandongs. They're one of my favourite bush foods. Um, I love the bright colours. You can get pinks and reds. There's different varieties at different shapes. They make a amazing jam. Um, I even use it when I cook my kangaroo up as well. I love to baste the kangaroo with the, with a nice um, sweet glaze.
0: She says it's been a poor kwandong harvest all around central Australia.
7: I've spoken to many people and friends of mine and colleagues that have an interest in kwandongs or are growing kwandongs and, and they've got quandongs in their backyard and all of them have said that yeah it's just really been very, very little fruit on the tree this year. For example, um, a friend of mine, from her few trees she, she's got, she harvested about um, 100 kilo and she said this year I'd be flat out getting two. So it's a pretty big drop.
0: Raylene says over the last 20 years, she's noticed the Kwondong supply goes up and down in a
7: two-year cycle. We'll get a really good... Fruit and all the trees fruit really, really well. And then the year following, it seems to be sometimes less or none. Um, and whether or not that's a cycle of our local central desert Kwondongs, I'm not sure, but, um, yeah, we just go with the flow.
0: <laughs> the mystery has Kwondong grower Gunnar asking for more research.
5: Say if we talk about citrus trees, there's been done research in that the last... 2000 years. So, if anything goes wrong with a citrus tree, they can pinpoint exactly what, what is the cause, what, what, what happened here. But here, no one can really say because it's a common thing that suddenly a f- full tree like that one here can suddenly just die. And no one know why.
0: Earth Sanctuary's Dan says he sold kwandongs for up to $180 a kilo in the past. But the fruit also holds significance to Aboriginal people. How does that link into tourism with your business?
6: This is the future of tourism, is understanding the, the um, these great aspects of the region that you're travelling to uh, and the, the cultural aspect of um, bush foods and Kwandongs just make this story even richer. Um, And this is why, you know, the sanctuary, we're very supportive of people and operators out there, such as Raylene Brown. There are some wonderful people here with some unbelievable knowledge, particularly the ladies out there in the communities, because they are champions of the region um, and their knowledge um, needs to be bottled (laughs) as best we can because it drives tourism. There's a great pursuit and a great want out there for people who want to know more about um, the foods to know about the processes.
0: Raylene says it's important any Western research or development of native foods involves Aboriginal knowledge and people.
7: More or less, the industry has gone on to become a multi-million dollar industry now and um, even being uh, thought of in the reins of export markets. But sadly, um, Indigenous people in the business side of things have very low participation rates or ownership in this space. And um, as foods get developed and researched, um, a lot of the IP and a lot of the um, the real value around those products um, is not in Indigenous hands. Um, although we've been the ones to share the knowledge, it's been hard for us to keep up with the pace of the growth of the industry, so we've been very much left behind. For me, I think it's important for, in our regional areas, especially where Indigenous people are the suppliers, that we have our own um, food innovation hubs where we can do the research ourselves, we can have the opportunity to create our own products, manufacturing, getting our young Indigenous people involved in food science, in agriculture, in tourism, and all the ways that we can devalue Abbott bush foods, but have a lot of the possible and positive changes in our regional areas where, We're really struggling to get our young people involved or get them them employed. And for me, it's just a (laughs) no-brainer.
1: Raylene Brown, a bush food grower and cook, ending that story from Victoria Ellis in Central Australia. You can read more about Kwondongs and the mystery of this season's lacklustre harvest. You'll find Victoria's article on the ABC website at abc.net.au slash RN. Just look for A Big Country under the programs tab. I'm Clint Jasper with you for A Big Country on RN. Still to come, the precious Tassie timber that's being used to craft bespoke wooden instruments. And we're meeting dressage champion Susan Wells. Less than four weeks after a second leg amputation, Susan was back in the saddle training on her horse Odie. Amelia Season has her story from WA's Southwest.
8: When you watch Susan Wells ride her horse, you would never think she's had two leg amputations.
2: They keep you going. It's like you've got to have goals with them and it's really helped me get back into life and not sit there and let that take over.
8: Susan's stallion, Odie, lives on her coach's fruit farm in Donnybrook, located 200 kilometres south of Perth. When it's time to go for a ride, Susan travels to Odie's paddock on a scooter and leads him to the stables, where someone helps her put his saddle and bridle on.
2: We've got a bit of a non-orthodox way of getting on at the moment, but at the end of the arena, there's a a large wall, and I just bring the wheelchair up to that, and then I stand on my prosthetic leg. And my horse is so amazing that he just stands there so he doesn't move a millimetre. He stands there so well and lets me get on, and then off we go. (laughs)
8: In 2018, Susan suffered an infection in the bone of her foot. Despite 12 surgeries over three years, she had to get her right lower leg amputated.
2: I was in hospital and my coach, Sharon, she come into hospital and she's like, right, when you're getting back on your horse. And I'm like, this is the person I need around me. This is the person that's going to give me that positive push forward.
8: It only took Susan eight weeks to get back on her horse.
2: My husband and another mate helped me get on, and they're like, yeah, but we're walking with you. We're walking around the arena with you. And I'm like, oh, if you can keep up.
8: (laughs) But less than two years after her right leg was amputated, Susan's resilience was tested again. Earlier this year, an infection spread in the bottom of her other foot and turned into septicemia. A life threatening blood condition.
2: It wasn't getting any better, and so they decided that it was the best way forward, giving my lifestyle in that, or else I'd spend another five years having bits of my foot removed to have it amputated.
8: This time, it took her less than four weeks to get back on her horse, Odie. Susan says even though it didn't take her as long to start riding after her second amputation compared to her first, the process was more difficult because she no longer had a proper leg for support.
2: At first you're like, oh my God, how am I going to do this? Because it's like standing on the edge of a jetty and you're just about to launch onto a boat and you've got that gap of water in between and you're like, am I going to fall in that gap? But you just sort of hold your breath and take a leap of faith.
8: The bond Susan shares with Odie is clear.
2: Being an able-bodied person most of my life and then becoming disabled um, and then riding a horse, you don't feel disabled. You feel like you're just like everyone else.
7: Yes, yeah,
3: better. Feel the reaction? Yeah. Good.
8: Sharon Jarvis coaches para-riders like Susan and has represented Australia at the Paralympics three times. She says building mental strength is just as important as physical strength when horse riding after a trauma.
3: I know what it takes to get back on a horse and to work through the nerves of getting back on and things like that. Understanding that it's an absolute inner strength that it takes to do what you do. Yes, you might be missing a limb, but there's so much more to your body that you can use.
8: After her second amputation earlier this year, Susan was nervous about the National Dressage Championships her and Sharon had been planning to enter.
2: Fortunately, you know, I've been able to have Sharon help me with a lot of that, she's very experienced.
8: The pair travelled thousands of kilometres over to rural Victoria in October, and Susan became the National Reserve Champion. Looking to the future, Susan says the sky is the limit.
2: I just live for riding and riding my horse. I don't want to do anything else. I mean, if, you know, a good lotto win would be good and then I can just play horses all day. The
4: instrument you can hear is an auto harp. It's closely related to the piano and made popular by people like Billy Connolly and June We've Carter Cash. But this one is a bit different. It's made entirely of timber grown on the wild west coast of Tasmania.
9: I'm Tony Newport. I was born on the West Coast. I was born in Xon and I'm into music. Give me a compass. I started to record myself. I'm not out of vanity. Um, more out of trying to learn because anybody that's ever been in the bedroom and belted songs out and thought that sounded pretty good, well, I did that. <laughs> and then I played them back and some of them weren't very good at all.
4: <laughs> yes, so, I've been there.
9: <laughs> <laughs> so it was a great learning process. The old steam mills, they caught on fire. It is a pretty ancient design, really. It's, it's based on the design of the old zither. So it has that trapezoid shape. It has seventeen, it has thirty-seven strings or other. and it's related to the Dulcimer family, the piano family.
4: Now, this one in particular that you've got with you today is pretty special. It's made entirely of Tasmanian timbers.
9: It's very special, Meg. It is. I am, can say with, with, without uh, any shadow of the doubt, it is the only one in the world that's made out of Tasmanian timber, and. Uh, Beautiful timber it is. It's uh, made out of fiddleback blackwood, called a saw King Billy, and it has hewn pine bars and buttons. And it's called the Bradshaw Harp because it was made out of timber, donated by Anne Bradshaw from the Bradshaw Sawmill in Queenstown.
4: You might have heard Tony mention King Billy Pine there. It's a material that's in huge demand, highly prized by craftsmen all over the world. But good luck getting your hands on it. Third-generation sawmiller Ian Bradshaw believes his mill at Queenstown on the west coast holds the last legal supply of King Billy sawlogs in the world, and he takes his responsibility as its custodian very seriously.
10: So we're a uh, business that operated in Queenstown, Tasmania, operating for uh, a little over 90 years now.
4: So what are specialty Tasmanian timbers for those of us who don't know?
10: all the uh, high value minor species or uh, special woods so they are they're not mainstream timbers that are produced in large volumes they are small uh, highly priced woods that are used for uh, furniture and instrument making and all sorts of crafts but they're essentially our most valuable timber commodity and they don't grow in uh, right across Tasmania they're only in little pockets right throughout the rainforest <laughs>
4: Both Huon and King Billy are in short supply these days, but King Billy Pine is considered the most rare native timber. In the 1960s, a major fire killed hundreds of the trees in a remote mountain range without burning them up. Seeing an opportunity, Ian Bradshaw's family set to work harvesting the trees until they were protected by the Declaration of a World Heritage Wilderness Area in the 1980s. Today, it's illegal to harvest the trees, and the Bradshaw's collection is the last major stockpile.
10: I mean, uh, most Tasmanian timbers, in effect, are in very low volumes and uh, in quite high demand. So, I mean, there's so many people out there that want a piece of Tasmania, but there's not everyone that has the ability to, uh, I suppose, improve the value of it. So, I mean, we really have to decide on which customer deserves the best pieces, and Tony obviously fitted that uh, role quite well. Well, I'd say he's improved the value of a very small, unique volume of wood.
4: That must be quite different to how it was 90 years ago.
10: I think, traditionally, early colonisation most of the early settlers probably thought that Tasmania was the land of plenty and therefore you know they they did utilise and in effect probably plundered quite a bit of some of our better resources and I mean that was the era so pretty hard to blame them for that. And now people have a much higher of respect for uh, our forests and its products and uh, therefore you know values are or uh, the awareness of the values has certainly improved quite substantially.
4: Are we still going to have these special Tasmanian timbers in years to come? They seem to be getting less and less common.
10: Well, I hope so, Meg. Uh, you know, we've got, uh, over the years and through the decades, I mean, we've seen extremes in, in politics where you know, there, there has been, on occasion... Uh, timbers uh, certainly special timbers that have been wasted in production of uh, mainstream timbers in it from our forests but I mean, and then we've had the uh, environmental movement oppose that quite vehemently and and if uh, when you're a, a much smaller timber producer I mean you you do realize that there's merit in both arguments so hopefully the The science and the politics will arrive at a place where things are utilised, managed a lot better than what they have been in the past.
4: So you have found yourself saying no sometimes to people who ask you for timbers?
10: You tend to ask people what they intend to use things for, maybe. Mm. And if they seem like they don't have the skills or the ability or the desire to create something and improve the value of uh, things that are quite special. I mean, you're obviously a bit hesitant in providing them with your very best product. I'm just really pleased that uh, we're all fortunate enough to be able to live and enjoy all the great things that are available in Tasmania.
1: third-generation Queenstown sawmiller Ian Bradshaw there, accompanied by musician Tony Newport, playing an auto harp made entirely of specialty Tasmanian timbers. That story was compiled by reporter Meg Powell, and you can read more on that prize timber. You'll find the story and all of the stories you've heard on today's program on the RN homepage, abc.net.au slash rn. Search for A Big Country. That's the show for today. I'll chat to you again next week.